The Beatles. England's rock and roll sensations make their bow to American audiences on our show. From Miami Beach. Next on the CBS Television Network. Welcome this week's When There Was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm John Stone. And I'm Martin Quibell. This week in the news, Paul McCartney was at the Super Bowl. He flew from New York City to Las Vegas and he saw the event and he hung out with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's dad, Ed Kelsey. He was in the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, indeed. The network didn't show him, but uh, Nickelodeon showed him, and yep, that was exactly what they put underneath. He was in the Beatles. It's like, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, it's a Nickelodeon audience. I guess the kids watching may not necessarily have associated that fact. Did he have his own box? The Kelsey's had a box. Paul didn't have a box. They showed oh. Paul in his regular seats, and I mean, he was behind glass, but he wasn't in a box. <laughs> so it did spring for the millions, huh? Yeah, probably not. So his career is over. He was there. He apparently had a good time. We saw him and Nancy and some shots of him reuniting with Taylor Swift, as they say. Yes. Yeah. It's nice to see that they put him down as being in the Beatles rather than he was in Wings. <laughs> this week, we're looking back 60 years at the two Ed Sullivan shows, February 9th and February 16th, 1964. My first viewing. Those were explosions. Okay, what did you think, now that you've actually seen it, especially seen it in its entirety? Yeah, it, it was interesting to watch, and they were honed, and um, they were playing live, weren't they? Absolutely. Mm, absolutely. I think John will agree with me on this. All respect to them for the great performance that they do without any monitoring. And you also notice that the, the cameras were very rudimentary. When the boom goes in on Ringo... The volume of his drums comes up because the mic was on the camera or a mic was on the camera. So suddenly the drums are louder than anything else. I mean, nowadays we just do that as an effect and it'd just be somebody on the mix going, turn the volume up on the drums. But as soon as the camera goes to the drummer, right, we're on the drummer now, turn the drums up. Right, we're on the drummer now. And then do it with each instrument. Nowadays, you'd probably do it like that as an effect. If you would, yeah. But, I mean, it would make no sense to to raise the drums in the middle of a, a musical performance. I think it's because the it was the camera. Yeah, I mean, the mix was 
for the most part, completely hopeless. Although it's interesting, the they taped the third appearance on the afternoon of the ninth, and that's actually a pretty decent mix. Yeah, that's much better sound. It is. For sure, yeah. There's a legend that the sound guys had marked everything out on the board as to where they wanted the faders to go and when, and the cleaning crew came in between the afternoon and the evening performance and cleaned them off, so... Oh, what are all these chalk marks? Uh, we can get rid of them. I don't know whether we believe that or not. It's a possibility. Was that the cleaning crew that was fired the next day? <laughs> <laughs> don't you just Oops. hate that, John, when you're in the uh, studio and you've got all your levels set and then you come in the next day on the studio and the people that have been overnight have scrubbed them all off? Oh, yeah. Luckily now, it's just computerized. <laughs> and of course, in this. the 70s, during the Plastic Ono Band sessions, we, we've seen these photos where John has a sign. This is John Lennon's setup. Don't touch anything. <laughs> right. So clearly he had experience with it being touched. <laughs> For sure. So that evening, everyone had been waiting, and the show started. The curtain opened. We got Ed coming on telling us that we're just about to see England's Beatles. Right. Leading up to this, there were news accounts. The 530 News had been covering this, the whole mania. So it was a big deal, which is why it was the largest audience for an American television program. You know, 74 million is still a lot of people. It is. And for people looking for something that's close, it's like the same buildup that the recent Super Bowl had with Miss Swift was exactly then. It was just like it was in the news. Everybody was talking about it. Oh, my God, what is this? Of course, we were listening to what we could on the radio, but the audience was very primed for this. I was actually surprised that the girls were as quiet in the beginning as they were. <laughs> when we were watching it, Louise was saying, oh, they were a bit laid back, the audience. Yes. In my mind, my memory, it was like constant, but it wasn't. No. It is very akin to the girls in Hard Day's Night, the reaction. And some of them, particularly when they go in on a close-up and you get a girl with her tongue sticking out, it's like, oh, yeah, they're in love. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which one of the four is she thinking about? The screams were intermittent, but the expressions on their faces runs the extent of the show. Yeah. I believe it was John who said when they came over to America, they thought, what an ugly race of people. <laughs> 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 and it's funny because we looked at the whole show and the commercials to me were kind of ugly. <laughs> they were raw. They were doctors and the commercials were just very odd as well. Now you can see why Mad Men was such a big deal and that you really did start to get creatives in to do something with these television advertisements. Sullivan had been on since 48. So, you know, the first decade, it's like, okay, we'll just have someone hold up the product and say something. Right. But, you know, by then, it's starting to, to move in a different direction. Yeah, the Anison commercial yeah. actually gave me a headache. Oh, <laughs> goodness. The first set of commercials, we got an all-new arrow shave, and, and, and that's hideous. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wet, wet. Yeah. It's just wet arrow shave. <laughs> and then it was followed by a shoe polish commercial. Right. Yeah. Uh, Almost looks like you were painting the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. You let your shoes so, get so, really, really bad before you polished them. That way yeah. you knew you yeah. were polishing them. We come back, we get the first set of three songs for the Beatles. We get All My Loving, Till There Was You, 
and she loves you. And as mentioned, the mix was not good. It was decent enough for All My Loving until there was you. The mics were set for Paul being the lead singer. But you get to She Loves You, they didn't switch anything over. This is the Paul-led version of She Loves You. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The cleaners did a terrible job, didn't they? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you wonder what kind of advance the people had in in, in creating the show. Did they know there were two singers? I mean, what did they know about this band? Because it didn't come off like they knew a whole heck of a lot. You know, nobody briefed them. It's no, there's two singers, sometimes three. No, that guy isn't it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like you say, it's just odd because the third performance, the balance is not terrible. Yeah. No. You know. Uh, the, 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 the selection of three songs, it is, is interesting. I mean, you know, uh, Obviously, they're holding off the big single until the end, until the second set. So they're going to play the other single, which is also rising the charts. As, as we've noticed on Top Remotes, Swan was uh, riding the coattails of I Want to Hold Your Hands. So there She Loves You. She Loves You had made its way into the top 40. All My Loving, that's a tremendous way to start. Yeah, truly. Energetic and good old Smiley Paul. He just had a look. If you're going to sell them, and who better than Paul McCartney for all the little girls? Mm. And then Till There Was You, it's the song for the moms and dads. <laughs> I think it was Lewison that says whenever McCartney would do that in the cavern, he would kind of raise his eyebrows and look up into the sky kind of, and the girls would just all, oh gosh. And he kind of gives it that in this. Cute Paul is in there. We're back to Ed, and he dedicates this to Johnny Carson, Randy Parr, Randy Parr being the daughter of Jack Parr, and Earl Wilson. Carson had just recently taken over as host of The Tonight Show. I'm a little bit surprised that Sullivan was so nice to Randy Parr because, as is known, Jack Parr kind of slightly scooped him by playing the Beatles in Bournemouth on his show in January. Hmm. Was there bad blood? There was definitely a little bit of bad blood, but Jack Parr apparently called up Ed Sullivan and asked him for tickets. Now, of course, it didn't hurt that Randy Parr was there with the Nixon daughters. That was insurance. (laughs) (laughs) He is actually looking over and pointing at Randy Parr when he says that. Now, why Earl Wilson, other than the fact that Earl Wilson was a buddy of Ed Sullivan's, I have no clue. Well, Earl Wilson was a very influential columnist. In the days of columnists, he was really big. He was Ed Sullivan's buddy. I mean, before Ed Sullivan went on TV, they were entertainment writers together. So, Right. All right. Then that is followed by the Anison commercial, which you noted. A grandfather clock the, and someone just screaming about their pain. Pain. Uh, pain. Pain. Depression. Pain. Tension. Pain. Anxiety. Pain. Fatigue. Pain, pain. A little bit of Frankenstein there. I was thinking of Spock in Devil in the Dark. (laughs) Ah! Pain! 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 And then they, they say... Headaches can give you depression. It's like, 
oh my, that doesn't play well today. (laughs) (laughs) So they come back to magician Fred Caps. Fred Caps is actually a well-known magician, and he started a lot of tricks which are even done to this day. The salt shaker trick he does here is a common performance that you will still see. Ah, okay. He does it well. (laughs) He was also the one who originated the long handkerchief where he starts pulling out handkerchiefs and then it starts changing colors and you got multiple ones tied together. Yeah, which doesn't work in black and white. (laughs) This is true. I had no idea he was such a pioneer. He actually won international magician awards. It should be noted that this is on tape. This is not a live performance because they had to get the stage ready for the next act without him we wouldn't have david copperfield (laughs) (laughs) quite possibly so it's interesting ed then comes on and introduce the song from lionel bart's hit musical oliver which is playing at the imperial theater well they didn't need to travel far then did they (laughs) (laughs) not far it's walking distance yes right and of course one of the performers in that troupe was a young David Jones, who two years later would be in the Monkees. He doesn't look 18, does he? No, not at all. He also did like a Merv Griffin right around this time. And you just see exactly how young he really looks. Mm. Yeah. The woman he was dancing with slapped his mouth over and over and over. (laughs) I couldn't tell. Is that part of Oliver? I think it is. She's supposed to be Nancy from Oliver. I think they do that in the film version as well, or a variation of it. So, yeah, I think it's part of the act. Unless Mr. Jones was having a relationship with her, of course. That's possible. I think he was a little bit young at that point. 18. I have to confess, I have never seen Oliver. They've bought it back a couple times, actually. About like four or five years ago, they actually bought it back and did a modern staging of Oliver. I remember hearing about it. We've mentioned this on top of most as an aside, and I'll just do it now just in case John didn't know. But the Artful Dodger role that Davy Jones is playing here, he ended up being replaced by Phil Collins. So he was like a bona fide actor when he was in A Hard Day's Night? I think he took over on Oliver after Hard Day's Night. Hard Day's Night was a month later filming of. Right. Then we go to another slightly odd commercial. Friday, September 27th, 1963, Lieber Brothers turned off the hot water in cities across the country. I mean, it's like he's announcing this emergency that had happened on this date, a date that will live in infamy. Well, yeah, you remember the great lawsuit. (laughs) You turned off my hot water for your stupid promotion. Cold water all. Uh, Do you think they really did it? Do you think it was just all we can say we did it? Or maybe it was like one apartment complex in each city. When we were watching this, we saw this advert and Louise turned to me and she said, 60 years ago, they were telling you to do exactly what they're telling you to do now, which is to not use such hot water to, to wash your clothes in. And they're telling you to do that now. Oh, <laughs> we come back from the ad spot and we get Frank Gorshin, one of the more well-known folks that was on the show other than Davy Jones and the Beatles. This was just a couple of years before he would take on the role of the Riddler. He's largely doing impressions here. The most memorable thing about Gorshin's act to me is that he's predicting the present day because his impressions are, what if actors were in Senate, Congress, and the White House? Damn, that deep state is good, isn't it? 
Yeah. <laughs> That's about all I got out of it, other than that I didn't actually like his act. You didn't care for his act, Martin? No, I didn't. I don't know why. Well, you know, most of the actors that he was impersonating are long gone and haven't really traversed time very well. There's a Brando and there's a Dean Martin in there. Those are pretty well known. Right. Yeah. But Dean Martin as a drunk was kind of lazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't sound much like Dean Martin either. (laughs) Right. (laughs) There were people who came who did it much, much better. Yes. Although I do kind of like this physical comedy. I will agree with you. It wasn't hugely funny for a number of reasons, but I did kind of like the physical comedy that Gorshin was doing. Yeah. I could see where the Riddler came from in this performance. Right. You know, in a way, his facial expressions were the Jim Carrey of the day. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Overblown and, you know. Okay. So following Frank Gorshin, Tessie O'Shea, another British act. She does three songs, the last of which is Two Ton Tessie from Nashville, Tennessee. That would not fly today. You don't think? No. 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 I mean, is that real different from Lizzo? Yeah, but Lizzo doesn't really do fat jokes. No. She may make a comment on it, but she's not going to do a whole song about, oh, look at how fat I am. Yeah, although it's the same attitude. Hey, I'm fat and I'm cool with it. But yeah, the the performance, she can certainly sing, and I will be willing to bet that she shares some discussions with the Beatles, both of them being British natives. (laughs) Right. Yeah. She's great on the banjolele. Isn't she? That's the interesting thing. I mean, you know, of course, George, to a great extent, and then to a lesser extent, John were both very big fans of that. I can almost imagine John asking her to have a little strum on her banjolele. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, probably George as well. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say George would be all about that. Was he as into Formby at that point as he would later be? I don't know. I don't know. I, d- I don't know. I would have thought that he'd have been brought up with it as well, you know, from his family. Right. At least aware yeah. of it, you know. Mm. I'm sure he knew the songs, and they might have had a very good discussion about George Formby and about music hall. Right. This is followed by a husband and wife team, and they have actually told their story a number (laughs) of times, most notably on This American Life. Charlie Brill and Mitzi McCall, they did the dress rehearsal. Ed Sullivan called them in and said, you guys aren't funny. And Ed proceeded to rearrange their act. Wow. They were worried about Ed's going to cancel us. Ed's going to take us off the show. They took the rearranged act. They were up in their dressing room, working through it, trying to figure out the new beats. And who comes in but John Lennon? Go on. (laughs) And, you know, the first thing he does is he asks for a Coke. They either had a machine or they had a tub there with Cokes. And so they gave John a Coke. Well, he didn't polish up the act or anything. They were trying to work on their act. And John just sat down drinking the Coke and they... Had a little discussion. Huh. So. Well, maybe that didn't help. Ringo came to find John and Ringo joined them. So the four of them were just hanging out. When they should have been rehearsing. That act was terrible. Brian was the one who found the two of them and and brought them downstairs. Jeez. It's John and Ringo's fault that they were as bad as they were. (laughs) It's Ed Sullivan's fault to a certain extent. (laughs) I mean, if this was the improved version, can you imagine what the bad version of this was like? Well, it could have been good. Sullivan's sense of what was good and bad is questionable. (laughs) Some of his attempts at humor weren't always on the mark, were they? 
And it goes through the years, Martin. I mean, it goes through the years. He was not a great selector of talent because he it would go, it would run the the gamut. It was promoted as that's what it was about. You know, you could see all kind of acts there, but some of them, I mean, you tune in to see the Doors play and the acts that you know, as you were waiting, they were terrible. Uh, in my so, estimation, <laughs> in your estimation, so so yeah, I mean, well, the biggest laugh they got in their whole set there was when she ad libbed that line about, "Oh, my daughter's waiting outside. She used to be in the Beatles." <laughs> yeah, it, it, she then ended that with the boring old, "Oh, but then she got squashed." It's like, okay. Hi, sir. I'm the next young lady's mother. My name yeah. is Rose. Oh, my little girl is waiting outside. You know, she used to be one of the Beatles. Well, what happened? <laughs> Somebody what? stepped on her. Kind of separated who is hip and who is not. Well, I mean, we would see a very similar thing in the next week, which we'll talk about very shortly here. I know Brill and McCall for two reasons. They appeared on game shows throughout the 70s. Yeah. You, know, you turn on to the game show network, you will see Brill and McCall. Yeah. Yeah, I remember him. The other thing is Charlie Brill appeared in both Star Trek, the original series and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, playing the same character, basically separated by 30 years. Oh, he's the one that was Arn Darwin. He he was Arn Darwin in The Trouble with Tribbles and then in the Deep Space Nine tribute to Trouble with Tribbles. So, yes, yeah. Louise came out with a funny one. If that was on the X Factor or one of those sort of shows, uh, they'd probably get three X's straight away. The end is just awfully sexist. It's like, you're the ugliest girl I've ever seen. And he's saying this to his wife. My mouth opened at that moment. It's not a great piece of work. It's not funny. This is then followed by the edit I don't quite understand. Originally, there was a Kent cigarette ad in this spot. You might think, oh, they're just cutting out the cigarette ads, but the February 16th show was sponsored by Kent cigarettes, and we get like three of them in the next show. So it's like, why are we getting a Pillsbury pineapple lemon parfait ad? Maybe they just didn't want to show too many Kent cigarette ads, or maybe they just figure, oh, most people are just going to watch this one the most. I don't know. I had a question. Were Kent cigarettes in England? I don't remember Kent cigarettes from my days of being a smoker back in the day. No, no. Okay. Because during the train trip to Washington, uh, I think George and Ringo are singing the uh, jingle from Kent cigarettes. John turned the micro night filter into micro knee finger. Exactly. So it was like that had an impact on them. Certainly, because they they knew the music and they knew the catchphrases. When we talk about the next show, I have something to say about that. But from the perspective of 2024, the Micronite filter was made out of asbestos. Oh, people were smoking their cigarettes through asbestos, particularly known carcinogenic asbestos. Right. Okay. Hmm. The fine lessons we learn from the cigarette manufacturers. <laughs> it's healthy. It's going to cut out some of the tar and nicotine. Oh, don't worry about the asbestos you're inhaling. Right. Okay. By the end of the second episode, the 16th, I was actually singing along to the tune of the cigarette advert. <laughs> I'd learned the darn thing. 
<laughs> Satisfies <Well>. best. <laughs> All right. So, I you know, so we're, we're back. We're back to the second performance from the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> they're doing both sides of the single in the States. We get Sawyer standing there, and I want to hold your hand. I think the mix was a little bit better here. Well, my notes say Mike's still not fixed. There's no John on I saw her standing there. Yeah, maybe it was only slightly better. I mean, the, what they seem to have trouble with was going from lead singer to lead singer. On the 16th, we're going to see that as well. Production meetings, people. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was the Beatles, and the audience was just overwhelmed at this point. You even see some girls in their 20s that are just getting into it at this point. It's like, it's not just all the teeny boppers. The first set is more the 14, 15, 16 year olds. But here you even see some of the like, what are apparently housewives and little black dresses getting into it. Well, they'd been subjected to exposure to Lennon's Liverpool leg, so. <laughs> and Paul doing his panty dropping routine. <laughs> right, so. right. So, you know, <laughs> what do you want? It was working. <laughs> but these are really good performances i think and the mixes side they were very good at this point particularly when you compare them to the other acts there's not much else which would hold up today right the note that i took on i want to hold your hand is that george and john particularly interact more and it just has a feeling that was not like anything else almost like playing on stage that wasn't show business then at the start of the show they certainly had a little bit they knew it was coming because they taped the afternoon show but they were still a little bit tentative by this point they know they have them right there's no question right it's like we just go out and do our thing and and they will be like putty in our hands <laughs> this is the victory lap <laughs> exactly and you will notice as they finish, they just throw their guitars down on the stage. No stands, no nothing. Okay, <laughs> Those were the days. And then they walk over to Ed, and John forces his way to shake Ed Sullivan's hand first. I like that. <laughs> yeah, John's the boss. <laughs> for whatever reason, they do not end the show there. They learn a lesson for the next week. They still have eight minutes or so, and we get the unbearable act wells and the four phase my comment here is what the heck am i watching <laughs> yeah I, my notes were what the hell ended this show some folks have said it's a little bit Cirque du soleil which i can kind of <laughs> see but you got a guy boxing against a girl and then you got a girl <laughs> who's on this spindle thing and they spin her around by her legs and it's like what is this <laughs> I had this inner dialogue that said, this is the troupe who shows up at every Ed Sullivan show waiting <laughs> for their to, to be cut short so they is can go on and challenge? do their little bits. I've <laughs> <laughs> been there now for like seven weeks. <laughs> there you go. I mean, what, what you've said there, they missed a trick. They could have created Cirque du Soleil around 40, 50 years earlier. <laughs> And just had them there doing all this gymnastic stuff around the Beatles doing their performances. There was something about it that reminded me of in Across the Universe, the Mr. Kite things. Uh, A little bit. Uh, what it reminded me of is David Letterman used to have this periodic spot that he would call, Is This Anything? 
<laughs> and so you bring on acts, which are just various weird acts. They get about two or three minutes, and then they cut back to, is this anything? And then Paul Schaefer would have to say, yes or no. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, time now for a little something we call, is this anything? Is this anything? Take a look. It kind of reminded me of my honeymoon, part of it. <laughs> the, the equipment reminded me of my honeymoon. You used equipment on your honeymoon? I, I had to. I had to. <laughs> it was part of the deal. Um, Other than that, though, yeah, I didn't think no, about it. No, I didn't, I didn't think that was Pretty anything. Pretty much nothing. No, that was nothing. nothing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they would have won Olympic gold with some of those moves. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm just thinking, wow, welcome to America. Man, this is bizarre. <laughs> so we actually get another Pillsbury spot before Ed leads us off, telling the audience how great they've been, despite severe provocation. <laughs> right. An attempt at a joke, but I didn't hear anybody laughing at it. I thought it was funny enough. To me, it was aimed at little girls. Who he was addressing were the little girls in the audience, the young girls. Before we move on to the 16th, there are a couple of fictionalized versions of this I do want to mention. First off, the film I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a really great film. If you kind of want to know what those girls were going through, it was Robert Zemeckis' first film. That was a, a decent one. And I would also like to point out that, mm. that the uh, the brothers... Um, first U.S. visit, the Maisel's brothers, yeah. Yeah, it... It's a great movie to watch. To see it from the Beatles' perspective is just, it's wonderful. I want to hold your hand. It's its very clever. And they actually even uh, got to use the actual Sullivan footage. They put the monitors playing the real Sullivan footage with their actors in, in the background. And the actors matched up the moves of the real Beatles on the screen. I, I, I love that. The other thing I want to mention is uh, Billy Crystal had a, both a film and now it's recently been on Broadway, Mr. Saturday Night, the uh, uh, about one of those Borscht Belt sort of 50s Catskill-style comics who, in that universe, played after the Beatles. Uh, you know, he was in the Fred Cap spot, and that was what ruined his career. <laughs> I need to watch that. So, all right, in the interim, they played DC. They played Carnegie Hall. Carnegie Hall. In that what? week, so... And then, as we know from Paul McCartney's book, they took off to lovely Miami Beach. Or as Ed calls it, Miami. Miami. I couldn't figure that one out. It was consistent. That's just the way he pronounced Miami. So, Miami. Sadly, the good folks in Miami let the Deauville Hotel rot, and they tore it down just a couple years ago. Hmm. A hotel ballroom which held between four and 5,000 people, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, there had been a bunch of political things there uh, in recent times, and would be, as I understand it. But you consider that the ad held less than 1,000, and here they were playing between four and 5,000. That's pretty nuts, actually. Wow. It was also an older-looking audience to me. Yeah, and that may have been the people deciding who they were going to send out tickets to. <laughs> 
Right. Because it had been such a phenomenon the week before. Um, so, yeah, it was much older, more reserved. The show opens with old school Miami, a fellow jumping off the diving board. And I like in anthology when they showed that they played it backwards. So the guy jumped from the pool back onto the diving board. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know it was rewound. I mean, I've been trying to do that for decades. Oh, uh, well, since 95, huh? Yeah. Since 95, I've been trying to work out how to do that. That's why I can't do it. Out of the pool with Lipton tea is what we get after the introduction. Hmm. So. Uh, pardon me, miss. Uh, what's that you're drinking? Coffee. Oh, well, oh. Well, may I suggest Lipton tea? Um, it's a change of pace drink because it's a refreshing change from coffee. Here, try some. Thank you. A guy sitting there out of the pool enjoying his orange pico. I, <laughs> the Beatles must have just been like, you call that tea? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> What's Pico, by the way? I, I don't know. I don't think I do either. Orange Pico has no orange in it. If you're expecting a citrus tea, this is not the tea for you. Orange Pico is not actually a flavor of tea at all. It's actually a grade of tea, uh, which has been assigned based on the size and quality of the leaves grown. Now, in general, Orange Pico teas tend to be a mid to lower grade of teas. However, the term can refer to uh, higher grades of teas depending on where and when they were picked. So we come back from the commercial and there's Ed welcoming four of the nicest youngsters we've had on our stage. And it's not his stage. <laughs> <laughs> it is not his stage. It's the Deauville Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> they come out. They start with She Loves You this time. I think this is a little bit better for performance. They're used to the states and they know what's going to happen. George looks a lot better than he did uh, on the week before. Several days out from his cold. So, yeah, he's feeling better. Yeah, he's getting better all the time. Uh, <laughs> they're almost but not quite cocky. They are. Now, I'm going to say something here that once I say it, your life won't be the same. You'll never look at that footage again the here we same go. way. John's hot take. All right. There's a pee stain on John's pants. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying you'll never be able to look at that footage again and not see it. <laughs> All right. The second song they do, a tremendous version of this boy. Yeah, it's good. Yes. It's, they are seeing it. They are on fire, particularly when John goes into that cry. Yeah, he hits it. Looking at them, they know it. It's there. And, oh, my gosh, it's just a great performance to watch and hear. The one negative is they didn't know how to shoot the three of them around one microphone. The camera's looking up at them at this weird angle. <laughs> yeah. And then, then then later on, is that Paul singing the guitar bit? You know, he goes, dee, 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 dee. Yeah, I think he is. He's singing I think he it. is, yeah. As we discovered on the uh, Band on the Run underdub version, Paul does that. Right. Right at the end of the song, we get a glance of John looking over, giving Paul this slightly skeptical look. Eh? You know, something must have gone wrong. John says something, and George sort of 
giggles at it. So they start in on All My Loving. Right at the beginning of the song, you can see George and John having a laugh over something. Yeah. Yes. You can see honest to goodness sweat on them. So it, it was warm in the Deauville Hotel on, on the stage in Miami. Miami? Yep. <laughs> well, it clearly was warm because I really noticed it when Missy Gator came out. <laughs> The audience was absolutely so insane, you have no idea. It was so packed and so hot, and the, the air conditioning ducts, they had to cover them up with lights. It must have, the, well, you know what it's like in Florida. In, in, oh, my God. And, and uh, you could see people, if you saw them in profile, water was dripping off the ends of their noses. But it was, it was madness, it really was. And I have to say, the audience got their, jo- their, their money's worth because... Of course, they didn't pay anything. But I mean, the audience really got, because the Beatles were fat. It was a wonderful show. When George goes into the solo, he's so happy. <laughs> he has this big grin on his face while he's playing through that solo. It's like, look at me. This is a killer version of All My Loving. A killer performance. It really is. They'd had their bout of nerves in New York. And now it's like they've had a week of realizing, hey, we did it. This is just a relaxed, confident performance well and then they were out of the snow they were out of the cold for four skinny pale guys from england miami beach wow yeah you know the sunshine and i mean you've seen all these photos but it's like to be that and then to be going on the stage it's like ooh, i like this yeah in february that's you know wow cold 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 and how is it in miami today i don't know we'll have to look that up <laughs> we come back, Ed Sullivan introduces heavyweight champion of the world, Sonny Liston, who was in the audience. Ed is of the opinion that Liston's going to knock out this no good, loudmouth kid, Cassius Clay. Right. Mm-hmm. As we will see before the second set there. And then he also introduces Joe Lewis, the former heavyweight champion of the world. No disrespect to either of them because they're both incredible fighters. Both of them were. No, oh, for sure. Mm. Ed then tells us that when we come back, we're going to get Mitzi Gaynor and comedy stars Alan and Rossi. Right. Can't wait. Followed by a terrible Lipton tea commercial. It looks like Leave it to Beaver or something. <laughs> yeah. Ward is coming home. I'm going to serve him the orange Pico Lipton tea, the quick refresher. You can see where the jokes come from in the future when you see sketch shows, jokes about these things, because this is a perfect example of exactly that. It's just like, oh, you need an advert, you need an advert. Nobody records them back in the days like they do now and don't pay millions. Uh, just get somebody to put some clothes on and make some stupid story up, and I'm sure you can do it. And Oh, absolutely. The dialogue is dreadful, and the staging is terrible. It's, it's just really bad. If you really want to take a deep dive into a rabbit hole, go into the history of advertising, because it's fascinating how it came along and what it influenced and... You know, television is the product of advertising. It, it really was like Mad Men. You see Don Draper and how this fictional character changed the world of advertising. That was really going on in the world. I actually have memories of, even in the 1970s, we had people doing adverts like this. But also, the stranger one was when we had advertisements that was just, you could hear somebody speaking, but they were speaking over a static picture with writing on it, right. the strangest thing ever. In that deep dive, you, you know, advertising is like any 
other form of entertainment in that yeah. it goes through phases and and crazes and everybody does this and everybody does this and commercials all seem the same and especially when you go backwards in time you can really see how they all kind of look alike although at the time they didn't seem that way they were more unique and so now we've gone in such a deep rabbit hole that has nothing to do with the Beatles. The next act on the stage, Alan and Rossi, the only reason we might know them is their hit record, Hello Dare, which I had heard, and that's about all I can say. Yeah. Um, there was one good joke in the whole lot. They repeated the McCall Brill thing. They do a shout out to the Beatles. Here he is, Rocky Allen. Hello there. You're, you're a fighter? No, I'm the mother of the Beatles. Big response. Or at least moderate response. I liked the joke when he was on about the boxing match and he said, when did you know you were in trouble? And he said, when they played the national anthem. I thought that was actually quite funny. <laughs> yeah. He was on lots of game shows and talk shows for many years after that. He was funny. Marty, what do you call a group? A group of chickens. Oh, bucket. <laughs> the one gag that I really like, what do you do after each fight? Bleed. That was funny. <laughs> the punch drunk fighter, that's something else that just wouldn't play today. And then it ends in a really weird way as they sort of dance off together to strike up the band while one of them puts on a beetle wig. <laughs> It's like, how how does this end your comedy routine? I don't know. No, no, no. You got two minutes. When the two minutes are up, go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the next act, Ed Sullivan seemed to have loved. He pushed it last week, and he's really pushing it this week. This is the star of the show. It's Mitzi Gaynor. Now, I mean, you know, she was a Broadway star. She had been in South Pacific. He asked me to come to New York. Well, we were going to be there anyway. This was October 63, to come to New York and um, do a promo for the show. And now, folks, uh, Mitzi Gaynor's going to be on our show. We've tried very hard to get her. And, and I'm all teeth and eyelashes and diamonds and gorgeous and all this kind of Yes, of course, you know, all this business, the real me. And, uh, and he said, and so really on the show, we're going to have Alan and Rossi and from, from Liverpool, uh, four guys called the Beatles uh, rock and roll. Okay, thank you very much. See you then. Ed, Liverpool rock and roll, the what? The Beatles, B-E-A-T. Oh. That was October 63, February 64. I mean, and I had top billing. If, if I, there, I have a picture someplace and I can't find it. I've seen it. it. Have you? Yes. Does it I say Mitzi Gaynor with mm-hmm. so and so and so? Yes, so? It, oh, yes. it does. So I try to tell people, oh, yeah, sure. She's a good singer, but I, I don't think that this was all that impressive a performance. How long did she get? I had 13 minutes. 13 minutes on the Ed Sullivan show. I think my favorite part is when she decided to tackle a whole series of spirituals. And I just thought, wow, that's a weird choice there. Um, yeah. When she changed the whole arrangement of When the Saints as well, partway through it, and I just thought, that is weird. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, did the Beatles go and say, hey, we did that song? <laughs> well, Paul probably got, no. got a trumpet uh, out and offered to play. <laughs> the Joshua fights the Battle of Jericho. Not great. Yeah, no. and, and, you know, the guys in the tuxedos dancing around her. You know, that I can actually see how that sort of links to a lot of the performances we see these days, but it just doesn't play today. Yeah. There was a whole industry of male dancers. <laughs> but uh, went from show to the, show to show. The thing this reminds me of, again, we talk about parodies and SNL likes to do 60s game show parodies. <laughs> and usually when they do it, they have a female Broadway star character who's kind of oblivious. That's what this reminds me of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. it's, it's like she's lost in time or in this specific bubble that's just like her bubble, and the world goes on around wherever she is. Then after she finishes, Ed comes up and tells us, the greatest thrill for the Beatles is uh, that they were actually going to meet Mitzi Gaynor. Uh, I think he made that up. To, to use a Britishism, <laughs> I bet they were absolutely chuffed. <laughs> Dead chuffed, yep. yep. Well, I was in love with them, weren't we all? Bob Precht said he and we're all invited in the dining room at the hotel for, for, for dinner. So they came in, the Beatles, came over to me and kissed me and asked me for my autograph. The Beatles asked me for my autograph. Are you listening to me? And, and they came and they sat down at their table. They took their coats off, hung it up on the back of the chair, and sat with their knife and fork like this waiting to be fed. Good guys, good then something which uh, John has an explanation for, although I'm not quite sure. There seems to be something going on in the hotel, and Ed just sort of looks up and goes, Communists! Now in the second half, the Beatles, is this off too? The Beatles, Communists. <laughs> the Beatles and comedy star Myron Cohn. I didn't get it, but John seems to have an explanation or a possible explanation for Didn't he say there was well, a light it, trouble you know, with the lights? <laughs> yes, he was talking about an issue, and so he was actually trying to be funny. Something's going wrong. It must be communists. You know. Doesn't play. Well, yeah. Like I said, Sorry, Ed. Ed's, Ed's humor just... It, just, it killed yeah. at the time. <laughs> you can hear the anvil being banged at that point, can't you? <laughs> so now we, we get the big spot with... Bob Wright from Kent Cigarettes talking about the highly absorbent Micronite filter. Oh my, we get several of these Kent Cigarette spots. This day, which is like you say, why in the world did they cut one from the February 9th show when they're going to show three of them in this show? I don't know. Yes. There's, there's one point in the ad where what they're advertising is something that they call an ad sort of filters. Not absortive with a B, but adsortive with a D. I don't know if that's a different process. The highly adsorptive Micronite filter. Maybe it was live, or I mean, it may have been taped, but it was taped to look like a live spot. Okay, leave the mistakes in there. It kind of reminds me of all those World War II films where you see a general with a cigarette in front of him, and he's just talking about this cigarette in front of him and, and how great the cigarette is. And it's like, okay, we come back to a film spot. Ed is outside at the Hialeah racetrack and despite the fact that he can't pronounce Miami, he can pronounce Hialeah just fine. <laughs> right. Very strange. The Nerveless Knox is the name of the act and he starts off with an introduction of some American Indian folks that he refers to as my Seminole friends. 
something else which just doesn't play today. Right. <laughs> the act itself, we still like, you know, high wire acts and things like that, but this one just didn't do it for me. It was amusing to watch. A health and safety nightmare. <laughs> right? You had four hundred foot poles and you, you had four acrobats who climbed them and the danger is the fact that they're on these hundred foot poles which are then swaying around in the wind. It's not the wind. They're in control of those poles because when they decide they're to come down them, they straighten up and they go down them. So that whole swaying thing was completely for your entertainment. <laughs> the end is the best part right. where they just sort of, oh, we're going to slide down the pole now. But <laughs> that was entertainment. Oh, mm-hmm. we go back into the studio and we get someone who is absolutely forgotten, a comedian, or so he says, named Myron Cohen. Myron Cohen was big. I mean, not big, big, but he was known in the Catskills. Are you being sarcastic? Well, people knew him. I mean, he was on Sullivan a lot. He was on other shows. You know, it, it wasn't that he was completely unknown. Very, very dry comedy. Yes. I believe what I said to you, John, was that he makes Stephen Wright look like Gallagher. <laughs> there may be a couple of funny lines on there, but this is a pretty painful four minutes or so. I just think, what was that like when that was cutting edge? Well, I mean, you got to remember that Lenny Bruce was around at this point in time. Right. Well, Lenny Bruce was going to jail for his comedy. As I frequently mentioned, uh, one of the ways that I've actually learned about what life was like in the 60s is The Marvelous Ms. Maisel. You can tell a lot about what they thought when you see a, a comic like this. Their main character, this woman comedian, was such a big breakthrough it's like yeah well if myron cohen is getting on the ed sullivan show i can see why a joan rivers alike would be such a big deal right more pillsbury advertisement the pillsbury push button cake decorator <laughs> isn't that just basically whipped cream more lard more butter as well and lots of sugar <laughs> okay e- even less healthy it's the worst but people just slathered on cakes as the icing on the cake So that was then followed by an ad for buttermilk pancakes, again from Pillsbury. And that was a new deal in 1964. You don't have to make up your own (laughs) pancake mix. Here it is. We'll do it for you. (laughs) And with a glass of tang, you're ready to go. And how interesting that I was watching this on the British Pancake Day. (laughs) All right. So, yeah, they learned their lesson. They're going to let the Beatles end this show. They're not going to bring up the knockers to end the show this week. The Beatles get the final spot, although Ed has to introduce them. (laughs) Before we get to their performance, we have to discuss, so is the show better for the Beatles ending it? I think it is. So do I. (laughs) I think for sure. You you put them in the first spot, you put them in the last spot. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You sound not certain. The surrealness of what went on. In the last show, there's a value to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can see Monty Python doing something with that, actually. Well, exactly. Maybe the Bonzos. <laughs> there you go. So here is Ed Sullivan showing the fact that uh, he cannot predict the outcome of the fights. He's making a joke, a very little joke, that the Beatles are going to perform some songs for the two fighters that are they're going to be uh, going for the heavyweight championship shortly. That Sonny Liston is going to get from me to you dedicated to him. And another one could fit Cassius. I want to hold your hand. 
I don't quite get the joke, but it's very clearly Sonny Liston's a man and Cassius Clay is just this little show off. And all you can do is, oh, oh, you can slap hands and that's it. They will find out very soon how wrong they are. Another time the the world changes. (laughs) Just a few weeks later. Yep. As we know, right before the show, Liston refused to see them and Clay would welcome them into his training center. Although Clay's response, once they left, is the priceless, who were those four little queers? <laughs> okay. So, he's allowed, but uh, it's just kind of ironic and kind of funny. But especially because those pictures have become, both from Beatles and Muhammad Ali perspective, some of the biggest photos that you're ever going to see. Yeah. You know, if you look into the history of either of them, you're going to come across those photos. True. So, so they go into... Saw her standing there. And this time, John is too loud. (laughs) (laughs) It it has always, for me, been an interesting thing in that, you know, you know how John sings. Well, he's singing this song in a tone of voice that is not the way he'd sing it if it was just him. I think he's blending his voice with Paul's. And that's how they create that great sound. But because the mic is wrong... His thing is, is out in front. And it sounds slightly odd. It does. Yeah. It's still a good performance, but it's still, it by itself, it doesn't sound quite right. Yeah. He pronounces vowels a little differently, and but it's great to hear that, that they had that ear to blend their voices like that. And Paul still talks about that. I mean, he, he's commented several times that when they were recording now and then, he had to do a little bit of nasal right. to make it all work out. So, Saw so Standing There is followed by uh, From Me to You. We're, we're back to John as the lead vocalist, so the mic problem isn't quite so bad. Right. It could be better, but it's not bad. Ringo is really into it. He's playing his heart out. I notice on this show, there are more shots of Ringo. He was the American's favorite. And so, you know, on this show, there's just more shots of him. Yeah, I think that may also have to do with the camera setup in the Sullivan Theater. The main way they got Ringo shots was to use the overhead camera on the crane. That probably was difficult for them to do. They could only do so many crane moves. Right. So then it ends with a gag they would use frequently. We'd like to finish off this bit, a song from our favorite American group, Sophie Tucker. That made me laugh. Another fat joke. And it flops. (laughs) That nobody reacts. And John John laughs at him. He reacts and just, he laughs at Paul. That's a favorite moment of mine. (laughs) Paul did his little joke and it flopped and John laughs at him. That just seems to be an endearing moment. (laughs) This is a really good version of Want to Hold Your Hand. Particularly when they go into the I Can't Hides. Yeah. And again, George looks in full vim and vigor here. Yeah, he's clearly feeling much better. So they they finish, they then go off the stage, and come on to the audience. (laughs) Just, you know. Yes. Sullivan knows that between last week and this week, we've just made some (laughs) magic. Let the crowd have their victory lap. (laughs) So as the Beatles come over and talk to Ed, Richard Rogers wanted me to congratulate you. And tell the four of you that he is one of your most rabid fans. Now, that actually probably would have meant something to them. I thought the same thing. It's like, here are these two kids who wanted to be the Rogers and Hammersmith. Um, and Richard Rogers saying he's a fan. If it didn't mean anything to John, it certainly meant something to Paul, I think. 
We then go to another commercial, more Kent Segaretta ads. Right. Yeah, it's good for you. It's satisfying. Terribly catchy jingle. And, yep, by this time I've learned the lyrics. And the commercial's very odd in that the whole deal was to take a deep drag and blow smoke all over your head. <laughs> There's It's a whole series of smoke heads. <laughs> they come back, uh, Ed expresses his deep appreciation for the Kiwanians. Were the Kiwani, I guess Miami 1964, the Kiwanis must have been kind of a big deal. I would say so. That's kind of slightly something lost to time. Who were the Kiwanians? They were a service group. Okay. And they would do various events. and. Okay. Uh, they were kind of akin to the Shriners. Yes. I was going to say, they, I can remember a Kiwani uh, circus coming through and... I'm sure they had some sort of connection with the hotel. That would have been a normal thing. You may know the Kiwanis because uh, in Catch Me If You Can, the dad was a member of the Kiwanis. Oh, yeah. They show him at a Kiwanis dinner and the story that he tells about the drowning mouse who would then push his little legs and turn the milk into butter and climb out. (laughs) That's probably where you might know it from. So Ed tells us, Who's going to be on next week? He doesn't tell you that the Beatles are on film, but he does tell you that the Beatles will be back. And there will be some other acts that Marv here is familiar with. Morkum and Wise. Yes. And Pinky and Perky. <laughs> yep, top acts. Yeah, should we say different levels of um, entertainment there? <laughs> so do either one of you know who the next British act was? Okay, so the Beatles hit, you know, and then you just mentioned that he says, and next week we have Pinky and Perky, and you know, yeah. so yeah. did he just start putting on British acts? Well, but he he'd been quickly? he'd been doing that for for a while. Morgan and Wise had been on a couple of times, and Frank Ifield had been on uh, that fall, you know, September October. So he's had British acts, but the question is, is does it increase? So to answer your question, John, listen to side A of Toppermost of the Poppermost <laughs> when it comes out. Our feature is indeed this season of the Ed Sullivan Show, and we, we go through exactly what you're asking. We go th- through this actual season of Ed Sullivan from beginning to end of the season. Promise you folks, this wasn't planned. <laughs> After Ed, we, we get the closing credits. You know, most of the people in the audience are really nice there's a guy in a cowboy outfit. What's he doing there? You know, he looks like the Lone Ranger. He's ten years early for the uh, for the YMCA get together for the village village people. <laughs> I do notice they get up really quick. <laughs> you know, like we're, we're leaving. Everybody heads for the exits. Yeah, but there were you know over four thousand of them in in that hall. It's like there you're not going anywhere quickly. I know. Sit down. The cameras are painting on you. Sit down. No, they all get up. They're leaving. I think they're trying to avoid another advertisement for Kent cigarettes that's coming up. <laughs> there is another Kent ad. There are a couple of other spots, and then the very last thing we have on our copy was an 
little promo spot for the <laughs> Dick Van Dyke yes. show. As he's smoking Kent cigarettes. So Dick Van Dyke is there d- taking a nice drag, doing a puff. If you're around Wednesday nights, stick around for the Dick Van Dyke show. Also brought to you by Kent cigarettes. <laughs> And that's the world I grew up in. <laughs> there, there are some amazing advertisements from the Dick Van Dyke Show, which you will never see anymore. And you can watch them all on Amazon. The Flintstones were brought to you by Winston Cigarettes. And, and there's also several spots of Fred and Barney puffing wow. away on Winston Cigarettes. It's like, wow. Yeah, well, you know, that was the thing. Cigarettes were such a big industry. They helped finance shows and magazines and and when it was outlawed their advertising there are people are saying well that's the end of print magazine you compare it to advertising now there's no movie trailers there's no fast food there's no alcohol none of those were advertised in either one of these shows that's right so Because we hadn't invented the Jack in the Box yet. <laughs> Historically, it's an amazing performance. Uh, both weeks, despite all the problems, I, I'm glad we've got them. I, I remember how long it took me to see the just see the Beatles performances and then to see the whole thing in its entirety. I remember getting a bootleg tape sometime in the 90s, and that was really yeah. pretty amazing. To call all this stuff up now at your fingertips is it's like, wow. It, it took me decades to first see some of this stuff. You know, if you compare the two episodes, there is something interesting that I, I sort of thought, which was in the one on the 9th of February, you've got almost the British uh, theatre being there, uh, you know, in between with the, the stage show of Oliver and then you've got Tessie O'Shea. But in this second episode in Miami, they've got they've got. Mi- Mitzi Gaynor showing you the American show, you know, show tunes and the stage of, you know, Broadway. So you've almost got the sort of like different theatrical sides from both sides of the uh, Atlantic. That's kind of interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I like the comparison of Alan and Rossi and uh, Mitzi McCall and Charlie Brill. It's like, you know, you got one of the old school husband and wife team, the uh, Nichols and May or the Stiller and Mira or, you know, go back even further. That's the Barnes and Allen. And you got sort of an Abbott and Costello type of comedy team. I mean, it's essentially the, the, the Ed Sullivan show is a variety show where you've got different acts doing different things. And yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what it, how it would be listed in the TV guide, you know, because they would list the, the show title and they would say comedy or drama, you know, and Ed Sullivan was a variety show. He was a bit abrupt at times, though, wasn't he? <laughs> you can see what a big deal it was that Brian convinced him to give them, you know, basically 20 yeah. minutes of national TV on two consecutive weeks. Uh, and, you know, yeah. in that in no small part promoted Beatlemania across the country. Yeah. That aspect of the Beatles story is, is just brilliant. Bride Epstein had it really worked out. And how it happened is a different story, which we will cover some other time. <laughs> we will say, and I'm, as I'm sure you know, it wasn't just because Ed Sullivan was flying through Heathrow on the 31st of October 1963, as he likes to tell it. Yeah, there's, there's a few people in the Beatles story who uh, come up with, shall we say, poetic license, in essence, with the stories that they give. 
All right. Uh, yeah. Any last comments uh, before we move on to whatever we're doing next week? Well, I had a great time uh, going back because it was, uh, you know, I was nine years old and it imprinted on me very hard, which has lasted a lifetime. I had fun watching them for the first time. And I saw them in their entirety for the first time in the 90s when they came on DVD. The Beatles performances I'd seen in their entirety, I think in the fest in the video room at 84. Welcome to all our new listeners who heard about us at the fest for Beatles fans in New York City at the TWA Hotel this past weekend. Yeah, that sounded like fun. All right. We will be back next week with a new show. Take care. See you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Ed Sullivan shows starring the Beatles. Two DVD set remastered in 5.1 surround sound. Twenty legendary Beatles performances. Including "I Want to Hold Your Hand," "Yesterday," "Ticket to Ride," and "She Loves You." Four full-length shows, bonus material, and many other classic performances and original TV commercials. The four complete Ed Sullivan shows starring The Beatles own one of the most iconic moments in television history today. The Nerveless Knox appearance was pre-recorded. show on Mind Come Wednesday night over most of these same CBS stations. Also brought to you by Kent Cigarettes. Judy Garland brings delightful entertainment with Diane Carroll and Mel Torme. Next on the CBS Television Network. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.